0: This is your first American interview ever, right? Yes, that is correct. There you go, so we're making history here, folks. America Audio with your host, Tim Benal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Benal of BenallOfAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is February 17th, 2008, and we're coming at you a little bit later than usual. I want to apologize for that. It's just been a bit of a crazy week and weekend here at the Boahq, a lot of family drama on the home front. Never seems to end here for me, folks. I don't know what's going on. But we're here with a really, really cool edition of the show. Really promising episode. Very ambitious installment of BOA Audio. As many long-time listeners know, I love the international coverage. I love to talk about stuff going on around the world as far as esoterica goes. And I really wanted to challenge myself here as Season 3 picked up again in 2008 to find more and more international guests and cover areas that haven't been discussed anywhere else on any esoteric radio programs. And I'm happy to say that we're going to be doing that here this week, as we're going to call nearly 8,000 miles away to Cape Town, South Africa, for the first ever American interview by Christo Lowe, head of South Africa's UFO resource, known as SAO4. We are going to dig into the South African UFO field from top to bottom. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about key cases in South Africa, like a 1989 UFO shootdown over Botswana, plus just tons and tons and tons of amazing UFO stories from South Africa over the last century or so. We're also going to talk about famous South African contactees, the history of UFO studies in South Africa. How it compares and contrasts to American ufology. The big picture influences on the field are the same there as they are here. The government, the military, the media. How do they shape the UFO culture in South Africa? We're going to find out from someone who knows best. The head of the South African UFO resource, Christo Lowe. Coming at us direct from Cape Town, South Africa. Seven hour difference on this one, my friends. Like I said, 8,000 miles. It was quite a mind-blowing episode to tape. Christo was up in the morning. I was up about 1 o'clock in the morning my time trying to take the interview. So I'm a little bit rough around the edges at certain points during the show because it was getting pretty late in the evening. And uh, luckily for Christo, it was early in the morning for him, but I, I was getting a little worn out. But needless to say, it is a tremendously educational edition of BOA Audio featuring tons of international UFO material that I'm willing to bet you've never heard before because, as I said, this is Christo's first-ever American interview. And we're going to be looking at ufology from a continent that is just way too often overlooked in the global UFO picture. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Christo Low, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Christo Low hails from Cape Town, South Africa. He has been interested in all things celestial since he was a child, and is one of the few South Africans who can legitimately claim to be a UFO expert. Is the country's only full-time dedicated UFO researcher and heads the South African UFO resource organization known as SAUFOR. He has spent the last five years compiling a database of key South African UFO cases and working with his group SAUFOR to raise awareness of the UFO issue to the South African people. His website is www.saufor.com. saufor.com. Without any further ado, Let's head on down to Cape Town, South Africa, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 25th, 2008. Christo Lowe talking about South African ufology on BOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very, very special edition of Banal of America Audio. We are going all the way to South Africa, my friends. Seven hours difference. It's 8 in the morning down there. It's 1 a.m. here, but we're going to rock and roll. We're going to be delving into the South African UFO scene. For many of the listeners here in America who are listening to the program, they probably barely know anything about the South African UFO scene. I didn't really know much until I started doing research for the interview, so I was really psyched to be able to track down Christo Lowe. He is South Africa's only dedicated UFO researcher and heads the South African UFO Resource s-a-u-f-o-r you can find out more about the south african ufo resource at www.saufor.com dot coming at us all the way from cape town south africa christo low welcome to the program thank you so much
1: uh, tim and uh, all your uh, listeners i'm looking very much forward to sharing a bit of our point of view as we see it from down south in the continent of africa
0: awesome i can't wait um And, of course, uh, this is your first American interview ever, right? Your first appearance ever on an American uh, radio show or podcast or whatever, right? Yes, that is correct. There you go. So we're making history here, folks. We're breaking down boundaries. We're crossing continents. We're doing time zone differences. It's wild here, but I can't wait to dig in. Christo, let's start out with, you know, the, uh, the thumbnail beginning, the bio, the background. Who is Christo Lowe? How did you find an interest in the UFO phenomenon? And, uh... And while you're framing uh, your background, give us a little bit of a thumbnail sketch on South Africa for the people here in the United States who maybe are a little xenophobic and, and don't <laughs> don't know much beyond uh, their own hometown or something. Tell us a little bit about South Africa. Tell us a little bit about Christo Lowe and how you gravitated towards uh, the UFO subject.
1: Okay. Uh, where do I begin with uh, South Africa's bio? Um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's a very, very uh, mixed uh, cultural uh, background uh, country, we've got 11 official uh, languages in this country. Um, we, you know, most people, if they think about South Africa, they would most probably relate it to a term called apartheid, uh, which is something that uh, was a, was a political situation that led up until about 1993. And in 1994, a new president came in uh, called Nelson Mandela. Um, he was incarcerated in one of our most famous prisons for a very long period as a political prisoner. Uh, but when he when he came, uh, became president, um, a lot of things changed. Um, the tr- something called the Truth and Reconciliation Com- uh, Commission came into being, and a lot of uh, past uh, issues came to the fore, and uh, a lot more transparency. Uh, in terms from the, of the government, mm-hmm. um, it became available and was focused on. Um, I, personally, I believe that South Africa is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Um, I especially love Cape Town, the city where I am uh, staying at, and um, especially the, the again the mix of the people, the different cultural backgrounds, the different uh, religions, points of views. It's just the most amazing um, place. Uh, to discover yourself and uh, to, to get a bit of a picture of um, possibly what the universe could be looking out, look, looking like uh, out there uh, with all the different uh, possible extraterrestrial races and uh, such other beings.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, now who
1: am I? Uh, how did I get involved in the UFO scene? Um, as far as I can remember, I've been a bit of a bookworm and uh, I was always reading uh, books on the unexplained and the mysterious. Um, uh you, you we used to get these readers digest compendiums of uh, the unexplained and i remember the first uh ufo information i came across was in 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 books like that
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then when i was 12 years old I, I read my first book um where a lot of attention was given to ufo experiences and sightings in south africa this was written by an author uh, called Cynthia hind she was a uh national coordinator for mufon okay uh in africa and uh, she has since uh, passed on but uh, she has managed to write two books on the subject and she also gave quite a few talks at international conferences so she was quite well known and i must just take my hat off for the pioneering work that she did yeah um then for me I started talking about UFOs uh you know after having read her book and you know wondering why people aren't talking about this very very interesting subject and all things related to it and then uh, as I started talking to people I realized why people weren't talking because I'll tell you what happened um, is that it's it would seem that people uh, most people have got quite a very strong opinion about UFOs about extraterrestrials, about all these you know fringe subjects, although it 's not something that they 've necessarily researched for themselves it 's mostly opinions that that are regurgitated, opinions that they picked up from someone else and and I figured, well okay you know if i 'm going to want to talk about this i 'm going to most probably want to educate myself on this so that I can uh, enlighten these people on on what the actual situation is rather than the assumed uh, regurgitated opinions. And um, so, you know, I basically, um, I, I just, you know, uh, locked myself in my room for years and years and years just trying to get as much information into my head. And um, in 1998, I had the opportunity to create a website and I wanted to collect all the information on the Internet that was available on UFO sightings and, and the likes. And uh, since that time, uh, because of the nature of websites, people found the website, and they uh, they asked me how did they become a member of the organization. And so I didn't know what to tell them at the time, you know. <laughs> and um, since then, I decided, well, look, uh, this life is way too short. Time is just going past so quickly. If I'm going to be making the most of my time on this in this short lifetime, I'm going to want to be doing what is my passion in life. And I decided that this is my passion in life, and, and this is where we are now 10 years later down the line, where we are registering software as a nonprofit organization in order so that we can collect information, disseminate it to those people that are interested, and uh, educate the public uh, as a whole.
0: Well, let's, let's sort of like talk about uh, SAFOR. Uh, for starters um, what's your membership like do you have people like all over the country you know uh, you don't have to give me exact numbers but I mean how's it how's it looking membership wise and talk a little bit about some of the events that you guys have had
1: okay now basically um, since the website uh, that I had and uh, you know members from the public contacting me there was also a situation where the media started showing interest in doing interviews and because I put my personal contact information on my original website uh, you know there, there was free access for anybody to contact me and um since i've been doing radio interviews um you know a lot of a lot of people has been contacting me over the last good couple of years, I would say since about the year two thousand um so it's been about eight years now um that people has been contacting me, and we've got members uh about um, 600 people in South Africa.
0: Oh wow!
1: Uh, all different levels of membership. You know, you get your just your curious kind of person. It's just like you know, wanting some information um, that they can't get anywhere else. And then you get people obviously who've had their own personal experiences, and uh, then all the way up to you know, uh, Disclosure Project kind of uh, expert witnesses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we've also even got members uh, in other countries as well. <laughs> I've got a, a member in in Russia. I've uh, got in France. Oh wow! And, nice. Uh, we've got in Brazil. <laughs> uh, so it's very, very interesting. Um, and uh, yes, I've never uh, really formalized the uh, actual membership as such. But now with the non-profit organization uh, registration process going through, we're gonna most probably want to do that uh, at some point as well.
0: Nice. And you guys have like monthly meeting type of events, and probably like an annual thing, right?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, we've been having monthly meetings for four years now here in Cape Town. And uh, in August in uh, 2005, uh, we started meetings in Johannesburg as well, uh, which is very far from Cape Town. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, we've had uh, three annual events, uh, which we've decided needs to fall on uh, World U of O Day, which is the 2nd of uh, uh, July. Uh, as, a, as a commemoration of the Roswell incident, and uh, you know, the first public indication we had that we were officially being lied to. <laughs> there
2: you go. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, uh, a lot of attention has been focused on that, um, especially because mo- most people in the public has, has at some point, you know, heard about that event. Other um, other kinds of events that we've uh, organised are things like uh, DVD uh, screenings. Uh, like a movie club kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we do uh, sky watch evenings where we would go out and, and, you know, just basically try and educate the people on the basic astronomy. And uh, things that are flying around at night. How to identify the different things, and in uh, also, you know, trying to uh, possibly establish a c- communication with the guys that are flying around.
0: Now, let's talk about the history of the UFO phenomenon in South Africa, because I'm sure you're pretty well versed on that. I have some some dates of uh, major cases, but uh, they only the, the dates I have start like in the '60s, and I'm sure you know more about what was going on with the UFO phenomenon in Africa prior to that. So, um, I guess just you know, talk about. Uh, you know, South Africa, and and the UFO, and how long does that history go back? Because you know, a lot of in a lot of countries, it seems to go back quite a ways. Maybe that's the case in South Africa. I don't know. That's why we have you here on the show, Chris. So Let's let's find out what's what's the history of the UFO phenomenon in South Africa.
1: Yeah, let's get into the meat of of the history, um, Tim. I just want to mention at this point that um, part of the reason why I'm you know doing this. Organisation and, and keeping at it is because of the fact that, as you mentioned in the beginning, you don't know much about what's happening in South Africa. Uh, you know, all the kinds of international books that we have access to uh, in South Africa mostly talk about things that are happening in, uh, a lot in America mm-hmm. and, and some other countries, but there's a distinct lack of, of information uh, coming from South Africa, not because there's a lack of events. Um, if I look back at the actual history I can tell you that um, I don't know if you're aware of uh, international waves of these um, what they used to call airship sightings Yes. Um, now we also had a, a, a very similar wave in 1914 mm-hmm. uh, in the whole country um, sightings of these things were seen and there was literally not one flying machine man made in South Africa at the time there was not even one airstrip um, things that were seen uh, were similar to you know a normal airship like a zeppelin or blimp whatever you want to call it. Uh, a lot of them had very very strong <coughs> excuse me very strong searchlights on them and uh, even in those days uh, some very laughable official explanation were w- were given for these sightings yeah um, here in Cape Town, When sightings occurred, um, people were reporting it from a a town called uh, Booster, which is about, uh, you know, uh, 130 or so kilometers from Cape Town on the other side of the mountain range. And uh, the official explanation was that there was a a naval exercise going on in Simonstown, which is very close to Cape Town, and the lights were bouncing off the clouds, you know, more than 100 kilometers. Um, So that was very interesting and curious. Um, And then another incident that happened in that time was uh, a women's cricket match uh, was played in Cape Town at a place called Greenpoint Stadium, and this match was actually interrupted by one of these things hovering uh, over them, so they actually cancelled the match, and everybody tried, you know, they were frantic, they didn't know what it was. Um, the army was called in, and they're trying to shoot the thing down, luckily without success. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, these kinds of things have been going on for quite a while. Um, and, and, and as our research uh, is ongoing, we, I'm sure that we will still uncover things maybe using older language in some of the older newspaper reports and things like that. Um, I can tell you each time I do an interview, and an, you know, I give my personal contact information out, over the air or in a newspaper or magazine. There's always, always new people contacting me with stories going back a couple of decades. Um, Then if we look at, um, you know, the Project Blue Book era, that was, uh, you know, when South Africa was still under British rule. And as far as we can tell, uh, the British, Britain and America was working very closely together in uh, collating uh, international reports. Mm -hmm. And South Africa being under the British banner at the time, you know, there there was no difference in that. Um, I've got a a, a reference here uh, of, let me see, 2 December 1957, where a major RV lamb of the South African Air Force intelligence said the following, we cannot deny the existence of unidentified objects in the sky. We have had reports of these things to which we can offer no answer. Now that was in
2: 1957,
1: mm-hmm. and uh, you know, since Project Blue Book uh, closed down in 1969, uh, you know, the whole situation changed in the public uh, domain, where all of these kinds of official research projects, uh, you know, went underground, um, and so. You know where we are today. We're trying to, to to piece together a puzzle to see what the actual picture was like. Um, then also, as our research has uncovered, there's been uh, smaller uh, public research groups that's uh, always been, uh, you know, at the scene trying to to collect information and, and distribute it to interested people. Um, and uh, yes, I've basically got a list of about. Uh, 10 or so uh, such uh, small groups that have existed oh, wow. at some point or another. And uh, let me see what else I can tell you. Yes, and then you men- mentioned a couple of major cases as well. And uh, also try to focus uh, quite a bit on that um, because there has been some pretty amazing experiences uh, reported in South Africa. Absolutely. Uh, Besides the the 1914 uh, airship wave, um, there's a bit of a gap here uh, which I hope that we can still fill. But uh, in 1947, we still had a few sightings as well. Um, But I'm going to skip to 1951, where uh, in a town also not too far from Cape Town, about 40 kilometers from Cape Town, called Paul, uh, there was an engineer who took his car out for a drive. Uh, One night, a test drive. He was working on the engine. And uh, it was late at night, about quarter past eleven at night. Very dark in the mountains, and uh, he just he saw a, a, a figure standing next to the road, and um, trying to get his attention. So he stopped, and you know he wanted to hear what this guy was on about, and uh, he was asked for water, and. Um, he said, "You see, knows where a nearby stream was, and he took the guy to get some water. And they pulled, the, you know, they took an old oil can out of the boot of this car, or the trunk, you would say, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, you know, cleaned it with some sand, and they put water in there. And they went back to the spot where he picked the guy up. And um, he, what he didn't see initially was that uh, in a very shadowy area uh, there was actually a craft that was landed there. Huh. And um, this uh, being, you know, seeing the generosity of." This engineer invited him on board, and uh, you know said he can ask any questions he wanted to. And um, uh, the first thing he he was interested in was to ask where they came from, and yeah. they just they just pointed up at the sky, not you know giving any specific details. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was he was quite surprised by the lack of uh, instrumentation and uh, uh, such inside of the craft. Uh, basically, all he saw was one box-like unit, um, and there was a, a panel with uh, with three levers on it. And besides that, he didn't see any kind of other buttons or steering wheels or, you know, anything mm-hmm. that we would imagine, you know, could be used as a steering mechanism for such a craft. And him being an engineer, being very fascinated by how such a thing would fly. And uh, they told him that it works with some kind of, a uh, you know, anti-gravity kind of, Situation, not going into too much detail, and uh, you know, and then after a couple of questions, they politely said that they need to go. That their problem was, you know, sorted out, and uh, that they would one day come back. And uh, that was the end of their meeting. And then uh, he was quite surprised by the whole thing, as you can imagine. And the next morning, drove to the spot, and he he, he found actual landing marks, uh, you know, at the spot where wow. where it was. That, this case was thoroughly investigated by Cynthia Hind, uh, I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who was the, the national coordinator for MUFON. Um And then in 1972, we had quite a number of major things happening. Um, there was an incident in a little town called Fort Beaufort where multiple witnesses um, saw the same kind of thing. Um, police in a nearby town called Middleburg were the first witnesses, um, and basically, what happened is this was over a period of ten days to fourteen days where the same object was seen in broad daylight and um on on a farm called breeside the the farmer one day actually called in the the police um because this thing just basically disturbed the animals on the farm and you know the daily activities that need to take place and you know you couldn't get anything done yeah and um and they actually suggested that they shoot at this thing (laughs) so so they did shoot at this thing and it was a very solid object um you could actually hear the reverberations of the bullets when it hit the thing Mm -hmm. It, it changed colors just after they they hit it and it sort of made a bit of a wobble, went into the bushes, set some bushes fire, a light, and then the thing just disappeared. Um, now, what was interesting about this case as well from our research point of view is that we've got an uh, organization in South Africa called the CSIR, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. Mm-hmm. Now, soil samples were taken and sent to the CSIR, to try and, um, you know, establish if there was anything out of the ordinary because they could see where this thing landed at times. Yeah. And um, the soil samples actually disappeared en route to this CSIR. Huh.
2: Um
1: And that wasn't the first or the last time something like that happened. Yeah. So, you know, what's happening in America, what's happening in other countries, it's happening in South Africa as well. <laughs> how it's being done, how it's being coordinated, we just don't know. Then 1972 as well, a little town called Rosmead, Uh, There was another multiple witness uh, case with uh, traces left Uh, on the 12th of November, uh, about 160 kilometers from the previous uh, town uh, where the major incident happened at Fort Beaufort. um, uh, On-duty police officers were first initial witnesses. They saw a red light um, just taking off into the air from, from Rosemead. And uh, then, the, while they're still watching this object, they got a call from uh, a principal of a primary school that was there. And this was a Sunday evening, and uh, this uh, principal was reporting very unusual damage to the tennis courts at the school um, that he saw. And they weren't too surprised because they they were just they were still watching this object, you know, going into the atmosphere from that direction. Yeah. So they immediately uh, in- investigated, and when they came to the scene, the, you know, they saw very very strange damage done to the the tennis court and to nearby trees, Uh, the trees were scorched Um, there's also uh, a report of a very huge rock uh, that was no longer there Uh, you could just see the hole that was left in the ground uh, where this thing usually was and why this is brought up is because it was actually a major headache for the principal because uh, a lot of kids uh, always played around this thing and, and actually got hurt because of it and you uh, didn't know what to do about it, and then <laughs> this thing now all of a sudden just was gone. <laughs> um, now there's, uh, there is there there is a lot of um, you know corroborating evidence supporting um, these reports. Uh, lots of uh, f- film footage has been taken, lots of photographs, you know, police reports, and uh, you know obviously quite a number of witnesses mm-hmm. as well. Um, then in 1974, uh, we move on to what what I call the Bait Bridge incident. Um, a couple was traveling actually from uh, Zimbabwe, which is a neighboring country, to uh, Durban, which is also a major city in South Africa, for a holiday. Uh, this happened on the thirty-first of May, and uh, they traveled through the night. And um, they had two encounters with uh, most probably the same um, s- spacecraft. Yeah. And uh, they recall some details uh, consciously, um, but they also. Uh, to go for hypnosis, and uh, where they recalled quite a number of other details as well. Some of the details we recalled uh, consciously was what happened um, was that the temperature of the car dropped dramatically uh, while they were driving. And this was very strange. You know, they, c- they couldn't figure it out. They just piled as much blankets and extra layers of clothes onto them as they could. And, um, you know, as they got to one town, you know, the temperature would just... Would would, would normalise yeah. and uh, they wanted to throw in petrol at the gas station and um, you know the, the, it was actually quite hot out because it was that time year, and the area it's not cold in that area at all and the petrol attendant was looking at them in awe you know being dressed you know, so thickly yeah. and you know looking so cold but it's actually so hot so uh, and then they also noticed as they wanted to fill up the petrol tank that it didn't take much petrol Mm-hmm. not what it was supposed to for, you know, the amount of kilometers that traveled. And this was, you know, obviously an indication that something was amiss. Yeah. Um, then as they left that town, uh, a similar thing happened. The temperature dropped again, uh, and, and, you know, the radio gave some indication that there was some electromagnetic interference. Um, and, again, they don't recall much consciously, uh, you know, at that point. But when the investigation was done afterwards and they were regressed, by one of the top um, psychiatrists in South Africa at the time, um, specializing in in that uh, kind of regression technique, Um, they found that um, the car was literally lifted off the road. Wow. And um, So this is why they didn't consume as much petrol as they were supposed to. They even found that the the tires that they put on just before their journey um, didn't show much wear at all. Yeah. Um, you could still see the little. I don't know if the tires that you get there in America are the same, but we get little knobs on on them when it's, when they're brand new. Yeah. And yeah. those knobs were basically still there, you know. And and those things go off very quickly when you're driving on a tar road. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they okay. Other details that came out in the hypnosis uh, was that um, there was a being that appeared in the back seat of the car um and they were taken on on board uh the spaceship and they you know they would, and they, they underwent some medical examinations um and things like that um we don't even know the the names of these individuals um but uh, the uh all the other um details are quite readily available
0: now how do you not how come you don't know the names Is just like a confidentiality type of thing
1: yeah there's a... um There's a big, there's a major um, issue with, you know, you don't know who you can tell. And um, there's a big stigma surrounding it where I've found, like I mentioned earlier, when I do radio interviews, um, you know, maybe a husband or a wife will contact me and they would tell me a story that happened 30 years ago. And it's something they don't even feel that they can tell their spouse. Wow. Um, and, And to me, this is another added reason for me doing the work that I'm doing, Mm -hmm. because, you know, these things are real, there are things that are happening that are unexplained, we don't know why they're happening, and it's worthwhile asking the questions and doing the investigations. Absolutely. And, you know, there's there's really no reason why people should react to the unknown with fear, although I know it is a natural human condition, but uh, if we can learn learn to live without this natural fear reaction... You know, it, it opens up a whole wider variety, horizon for us to, to explore um, things that we don't currently understand. And isn't that supposed to be really what the pursuit of science is? I mean, we don't investigate things we already know, is it?
0: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> now, these the, uh, the engineer and these people here who had the, the encounters, uh, how did they describe the beings, sort of the way that they've been described across the different uh, countries or anything different uh, out of the norm or anything like that?
1: Yes, the engineer described the, the beings that he encountered as very, very human-like. Um, maybe, possibly, uh, towards a Mediterranean kind of a look. Uh, they had this kind of dark hair and uh, more of a olivey kind of skin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then uh, the beings that described in the, the abduction event that was uh, like we would know as a typical kind of a grey. Uh, description.
0: Yeah. So the same oh. people that we think are doing the abductions here in America cu- cut across the boundaries. Yes. I don't want to jump in here, so if you want to keep going with the, uh, with yes, I can go on for
1: quite a while. But <laughs> no, you keep
0: jumping. Yeah. Well, let me right? let me uh, let me throw a couple out that I have here, and um, and then if there's if there's some more that you think we should mention, I'll ask you at the end uh, of of uh, the list I have here. I only have like four to ask you about, so. And okay, they're more good. recent anyway. Um, what about this 1989 uh, UFO shoot-down that apparently uh, happened near Botswana? What's the story with that one?
1: One of my favorites. <laughs> this is ongoing. This is open investigation still, Tim. Um, as far as we can piece together, because obviously there's a very, very high level of secrecy surrounding this event, mm-hmm. um, most of the information comes from our uh, friend and researcher in Britain, uh, Tony Dodd. He was head of the Quest International, um, uh, which is quite interesting because uh, it looks like if you are in the country where a major event such as this happens, then you don't have access to the information. But if you're outside of the country, then you can get your hands on the information. (laughs) But um, no, let me tell you basically uh, how we see that event. 1989, the... I think it was the 7th of May. Yes, the 7th of May. The first indication we had that our airspace was intruded um, or was going to be intruded was a, a ship called the Tafelberg, uh, which picked up uh, you know, the radar signals, and this was confirmed via airborne radar and land-based radar. Um, two Mirage jets were sent to intercept this unknown target, as far as we can tell um, We were also Receiving confirmation From NORAD In America
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, About this And um, Basically a Visual Contact was established um, By the squadron leader Whose name, <coughs> whose name We do know um, His name was uh, His surname was Goerson And um, He was instructed To shoot at this object And um, on, on this plane was mounted an experimental maser cannon not a laser a laser, microwave amplification hmm. I stimulated something something <laughs> yeah. and he shot at this object once and it disabled it there was a fl- flash or two flashes of light seen um, the object lost control and it crash landed about 40 kilometers uh, in the Botswana uh, side of mm-hmm. the border so it wasn't actually in South Africa this thing came down which is another interesting point because, you know, you can't just as one country go into another country and go pick up something up and bring it back, Yeah. whatever (laughs) it is. Um, So, you know, there's a couple of interesting things that have come because of that. But what happened was the first, uh, you know, obviously the Mirages were first on the scene. They knew the location where this thing came down. They reported it back to whoever they reported it to. And uh, helicopters were sent to secure the area on the ground and, you know, make sure that nobody else gets close, even though it's in the desert. Uh, they, they know that there's, you know, nomadic people living in the area. Um, so they just wanted to make sure that, you know, it's a clean environment, as quickly as possible, retrieve this object and get it away. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: sadly, what happened was that the first helicopter that arrived on the scene um, wasn't aware of the electromagnetic field um, in the area, and it actually caused the instrumentation of the helicopter to malfunction and this helicopter crashed, killing all four uh, crew members on board. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, they had to quickly figure out a way to try and neutralize that electromagnetic field. Uh, as far as I can understand it, uh, there was communication sent to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, trying to figure out you know, how to deal with the situation and something like a 70-page uh, telex was sent uh, describing how to deal with the situation. Oh, wow. Um, basically, what, how they neutralized that suggestion is there was some kind of a paint compound that they were told to use. I don't know the exact makeup of this. Uh, possibly, at some point in the future, we can, you know, get information on what exactly this thing was mm-hmm. and see how, how credible that is. Um, but they, they, you know, they basically painted it on by hand, and this neutralized the electromagnetic field. They were able to get these big trucks in the this object, uh, by the way, had a diameter of about 10 meters, about 30 foot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so they were able to, to load it up onto one of these flatbed, uh, flatbed trucks and uh, in a military convoy move it to Pretoria, where most of our uh, military headquarters are. And, you know, they, they do have places to hide things there. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Um, we, as far as we can tell, it, was, it, it ended up at a military base called Valhalla uh, Air Force Base and uh, from the um the american government was also very interested in actually acquiring this te- this technology and the beings that was found um and uh, it eventually ended up that we gave the stuff away to you guys um and in exchange for that uh, america would keep quiet uh, at the un about our nuclear testing that was taking place Huh. And I wouldn't be surprised if um, nu- actual nuclear components or actual weapons was also exchanged. So uh, the, the level of secrecy is, is very, very high. And, uh, you know, if, if this story comes out with names of people who actually made these kinds of decisions, uh, you know, heads will roll because this hasn't been that long ago. It's only 1989. And most of the people that were involved in this incident most probably still alive. And uh, I've had quite a number of independent corroborations that uh, an event actually did happen there. Um, As you can imagine, there was quite a lot of people in the military at the time that are no longer in the military right now anymore. Um, One guy wrote a letter to me saying that his job was to transport equipment from Pretoria to Angola at the time, which is where we had a war going. Mm -hmm. And um, one day, as he was driving... Uh, he passed a small convoy. Uh there was two military vehicles at the back and this flat used flat, flatbed truck in the middle and then two military vehicles in the front, which he thought was unusual because he saw irregularly regularly saw convoys like this. Yeah. You know, transporting equipment, captured um vehicles from the Angolans which were most probably Russian made, um, things that we wanted to study, you know. Um, and he, and this was odd because normally there was only one vehicle at the behind the truck and one vehicle in front, and so he you know he, he paid a little bit more attention and he saw he could actually clearly see what was on the back of this truck because it was only covered by some kind of a tarpaulin yeah and um you know it was classical like we would call a a saucer shape, you know two inverted saucers on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he got a very good look at it because, uh, it was, it was going very slowly and he passed them because he was going faster. And he was in a military vehicle. They were in military vehicles. So they didn't mind him, you know, catching a glance at this thing. But, uh, he mentions that, um, it was hanging over the flatbed truck on the left hand side where it goes into the yellow lane. Um, we drive on the left hand side of the road, by the way. Yeah, I know you guys are on the right-hand side. Mm-hmm. So now uh, it, it, this thing was hanging over on the left-hand side, over the yellow line, and over the middle line on the right-hand side. And uh, that's why they were going so slowly, because it was actually taking up a lot of road space at the time. Um, and then I did a radio interview uh, last year uh, where a radar operator called in. Well, he was a radar operator at the time, and he confirmed that, uh, you know, they call it a bogey when they pick something up on the radar, yeah. uh, that they don't know what it is. And he he picked that up himself. He was one of the people that saw that. He, does, he, obvi- he still says that he doesn't know what that was, but he knows something was picked up on radar, two mirage jets were scrambled to intercept this thing. This thing was brought down, and a major hush-up uh, operation ensued after that. Everybody was just told to keep quiet about it, not giving any explanations. Wow. Um, so, you know, these little bits and pieces are all coming together.
0: Where did you get the information about the uh, the being and stuff like that in the ship? I presume there was someone in the ship. So uh, yeah. where did you get that kind of information? When, um, what do you know about that?
1: Yeah, the first information came from uh, Tony Dodd. Uh, he was sent what was claimed to be official documents at the time by somebody who just copied the information uh, from South African Air Force Intelligence. Um, we decided that this information is way too important for it not to come out, and uh, there was there was a lot of major issues regarding the personality of this guy. They eventually met with him, and um, you know, because of his uh, unreliability, uh, a lot of doubt was cast on this whole incident. Uh, even though independent corroboration has been made uh, by Tony Dodd. And, the, and his investigators, and you know, by myself, and uh, quite a few other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, those documents, uh, those original documents that were sent, um, basically gave a whole breakdown of an autopsy that was done, uh, the exact size of the craft, and and something that 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 you would imagine, uh, you know, a scientific study would show uh, shows all the, the measurements and uh, the beings were also greys um, they had three fingers they had long claws at the end of the fingers um, there were three beings uh, found uh, initially what happened was uh, this thing was not damaged beyond uh, it, it, you wouldn't notice that it was really really damaged in the crash yeah um, the and they didn't know there were beings inside at the time when this uh, craft was transported to the Valhalla Air Force Base. Um, but when they reached there, they, they saw there was a little crack, uh, and they tried to open that crack with hydraulic equipment. And, uh, you know, two two beings sort of came stumbling out. They, they were obviously injured, uh, and the third one was deceased, uh, was dead. And um, as far as I know, <laughs> and this is typical of the South Africans, I suppose, and possibly everywhere else, is uh, when, when we gave the, the craft and the bodies to, the Ameri- to, to you guys, um, we only gave you two bodies. <laughs> we, didn't give you, we, we kept one. And there, there has been independent uh, corroboration um, of uh, people who was contracted to assist the, the, the military in doing an autopsy on this being at uh, one of uh, our world-famous uh, hospitals in Cape Town, called Um And the University of Cape Town uh, was also uh, involved uh, in the microbiology department. Um, and, and like I said, this case is still ongoing. And uh, if possible, if, the, if you guys are interested, you know, I can... Uh, keep you guys up to date as to what we find.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I'm fascinated by this case already. Uh, I'm excited that there may still be a body in in South Africa. I think the chances are better that we'll get our hands on that than any bodies that are, end up in America.
1: Uh, well, maybe I, I'm I, I certainly hope so yeah. uh, it's just that if, if we look at the situation from an objective point of view I would imagine that the same kind of guys that are keeping a lid on it in America are the same people that's doing it Yeah. 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 and they, well, they're following the same procedures they've got the access to the same funds and the same equipment and same uh, specialists um, so yeah, I wouldn't get my hopes up on that specifically <laughs> but I think uh, at some point or another the truth does come out and um as far as you know my personal opinion or understanding goes of say for instance you know the majestic 12 group or, or the pi 40 or whatever they called nowadays
2: mm-hmm.
1: um you know half of them or at least half of them want the public to know you know at least the basic details as fact and the other half are still clinging on to the old generation of you no know, you know we can't let this out uh, people are, are going to want to look for scapegoats, and you know I'm not going to you know take the blame for this. Yeah. Uh, so they're just you know leaving it for the next generation, and you know continuing to do that. But as as the newer guys are replacing the older guys, uh, they're coming in with a different world view, um, and 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 I'm I've got a lot of hope that
0: the information would come straight from these guys. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Um, yeah, I got two more, two more little uh, cases here. The uh, the aerial school case of nineteen ninety four. Yes, yes, that was uh, happened in Zimbabwe. Uh, also, investigated
1: by Cynthia Hind very thoroughly. Uh, she dedicated two chapters in her book to to that one specific case. Oh wow! Um, I'm not an expert on on that case myself specifically. I've Trying to focus my attention um, as far as possible on South Africa. Well, I can okay, give you yeah. a bit of background on that if you if you if, like. If you, if you want to, if you feel comfortable, go for it. Yeah, no, it's basically um, this happened at a primary school, and uh, there was a cross section of different uh, cultures, and you know, it wasn't just one, it just wasn't just white people, just black people, whatever the case would be. And and what happened was was um, craft landed. Uh, communicated with the children while the the adults, the teachers were um, having their break and being inside the building and all the children are playing outside. And they received telepathic communication. Um, And these were also grey beings. And after, when the investigation was done, the children uh, were all asked to draw, to draw pictures of what they saw. Mm -hmm. And the similarities of, you know, the pictures between all these children, something like 60 children were asked to draw what they saw. Oh wow. Uh, it was just amazing. Uh, as I said, mainly my focus is on South Africa, but as we you know, get some help, with the research, then obviously we will expand to neighboring countries and the rest of Africa as well.
0: Definitely, definitely. Um, Well, let me ask you about what's going on kind of in the last uh, year and a half or so down there, and that seems to be uh, some crashes going on, some UFO crashes down there. I have one here for May of 06 and one for the end of 06, early 07. So um, am I correct on those dates, and, and is there some kind of crash wave going on?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very, very difficult to to actually know what's going on. Um, the the 2006 one uh, that was in a town called Port Shepston and that's something that crashed into the sea, very close to to the shore. Um, but for all intents and purposes, there was a, a smoke trail that was seen in the air for up to about ten minutes afterwards, and you know also a lot of heat as this object, whatever it was, hit the water, and you know the surface was bubbling and everything. So, it, it, you know, um, from my point of view, uh, I don't expect this to be anything other than um, either some space junk or a meteorite. Yeah. Um, okay. the you know, There was a thorough investigation done by our National Sea Rescue Institute uh, because they received initial reports um, that an airplane might have gone down. Um, so their job would be to try and, you know, find survivors or help survivors if, you know, if, if there was such a thing. They didn't find any kind of uh, debris, any kind of oil slick. They know exactly that they, they pinpointed they, because of all the witnesses and the triangulation, they pinpointed the exact position which was about 300 meters offshore
2: mm-hmm. where this
1: thing came down and, and they sent divers down there and you know there was nothing, nothing out of the ordinary whatsoever. Strange. You know, and then the other, uh, other incident you mentioned happened in a town called Lepalale, mm-hmm and um i don 't know too much about this. this was uh this this went underground as as quickly as it came to the surface um, also because it 's so far away, you know we don 't have the resources yet to actually go and investigate yeah. everywhere when something happens unfortunately um so hopefully we can get to a point like that um, but as far as uh, I remember, there was a um a municipality uh official who first publicly spoke about this uh, her name was Leonie Russ and uh, she's uh, she, she, there, there's no um, doubt of her credibility as a witness and and obviously she's not the only witness, quite a lot of people saw an orange, a bright orange uh, light come crashing down and um, and it made a heck of a loud noise like an explosion and um and then the the information just becomes muddled um we we really don't know what that object was the official explanation that was given afterwards uh, to the public is that there was a power surge along the power lines um that caused this glowing ball of plasma or whatever that that uh, traveled down the
0: transmission lines <laughs> Strange. Yeah. No, so, so
1: hopefully we can still, um, you know, investigate that at some point. Um, it's just a bit difficult uh, being limited with resources now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it seems like one of those cases where it just happened a year ago. So you're going to need to wait <laughs> a little while before you get the the kind of witnesses that are really key for that kind of thing, like retired military folks and stuff. And uh, what about any other key or notable cases you want to mention? Anything you think that that uh, we we left out that you think is you know a, a hallmark of South African ufology that we we didn't hit on?
1: Um, yes, there's been a, quite a few uh, other ones. I'm just going to briefly touch on them, and um, I can also make a, a synopsis of it, maybe make it available for you to put on your website at some point. Let me see here. Um, yes, in 1975, uh, in the town called Loxton, there was another landing that happened. Um, let me see the the kind of uh, trace evidence that was left um, uh, on that spot. Nothing ever grew ever again up until this day. Huh. Um, so that, that's that's quite another uh, heavy one there, um, you know, with physical evidence. And in 1978, um, there's a Grindal Nature Reserve in a town near a town called Poor Elizabeth, where four teenage boys went out hiking, and uh, they saw a landed craft, and they saw silver-suited beings, uh, which, which didn't walk like humans they uh, sort of floated more than they walked Mm -hmm. um and the terrain was quite inaccessible as well where they where these beings were moving um and when they were moving uphill instead of leaning forward like we would um you know if you can imagine just trying to walk uphill you always lean a little bit forward yeah and if it's extremely uphill, you lean a lot forward. Mm-hmm. Now, these guys were just walking at a 90-degree angle or floating at a 90-degree angle uphill. Weird. And one of these guys was carrying a silver suitcase. It was very clear. All of, all the descriptions are the same. And uh, from my personal information, I came across this case um, because I met uh, a guy who was at school with, with these four teenagers at the time. Um, and he told me that guys ca- claiming to be from NASA came to them and uh, you know did a bit of an interview and did hypnosis on these, on these four teenage boys and after the hypnosis session they would not talk about the event ever again. So I don't know what happened there. Um, we do know this it was investigated um, by the University of Port Elizabeth uh, Geology, professor there brought some Geiger uh, counters with and they used uh, experienced bush trackers who works on the nature reserve and knows the area very well to try and find this spot and they did find this spot, they made, took measurements um, you know there were symmetrical marks left there and it was it was really really inaccessible bush terrain Yeah, it's not something that uh, you know somebody could quite easily hoax
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then to continue we've had it, we had another major case happen in 1979, uh, we call this the Mindalore case um uh, a mom and their son took the dog for a walk one evening and uh, in the middle of the road there was this craft parked and uh, and then uh, the mom said to the boy run back and go get your dad and um, that's all they remember and then they also went for hypnosis and uh, then basically they were invited on board but uh, they didn't want to really go on board and, uh, there, there were some medical experiments done on them. And, um, unfortunately a little boy, uh, also died in a car accident not, not long after that. And, uh, the mom also, knew, you know, didn't really want to talk about it any, uh, much more after that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then, uh, we've, we've got another crash, sim- uh, similar to the Kalahari incident of 1989, uh, in 1995 in Lesotho, uh, which is a, a neighboring country inside of the borders of South Africa. Also, very, very scanned details. Um, on the 15th of September, um, a farmer in the area, um, basically notified the police that he's, that something would crashed on his farm and his, his whole, all his grasslands were, you know, flame. And he, he said to them, whatever, he's come and take it away. You know, that's all he wanted was whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so this went up the chain, got to our Air Force and, you know, and the rest we don't know anything about. <laughs> um, and
2: then
1: in 1996, uh, there's another major case uh, where um, h- literally hundreds of police officers were involved. Um, very early hours of the morning, uh, a, a very bright object was seen hovering, um, and uh, you know, over a distance of about 160 kilometers, this thing was was tracked and traced and chased by police officers, um, even in a helicopter, and they took some video footage uh, of the object. Um, and they, the eventual explanation was that this thing was Venus,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: which uh, doesn't really inspire much confidence in our police force, if that is the case. Yeah. But nonetheless, I also did receive some information which could possibly point to this not being an actual UFO, but an IFO. Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to get corroboration of this, but it is quite possible that this ca- uh, was a top-secret radar reflector device uh, connected to a balloon, huh. um, which at the time uh, they couldn't uh, reveal because it was being used in secrecy at the time uh, for national defense purposes, and that I do understand. Um, but uh, you know, since then... You know, if the information is not sensitive anymore, so it, it is able to come out. I, like I say, I'm just trying to still get uh, uh, you know some written confirmation.
2: Yes.
1: Um, but it does fit the, the, all the details. And in 1998, in a town called Hrofrenet, 3 p.m. on the 27th of December, uh, another UFO incident was captured on video. Uh, this time, multiple rounded triangular craft were seen, which seemed to move in a formation. Uh, while this group was performing aerial maneuvers, a much larger spherical object flew by, and the other objects seemed to follow it until the whole group disappeared behind the clouds. Um, so as you can hear, you know, we've got the whole range of things happening here as well. Yeah. And then I'd just like to touch briefly on a few of the personalities, um, people who've had ongoing contacts or has uh, talked a bit about, um, some information on an ongoing basis. Oh, so you're uh, saying, uh, like
0: contactees in South Africa? Uh, yes. Oh, yes, awesome! So yeah, let's let's hear. It. That sounds fascinating.
1: With the most famous contactee uh, in, from from South Africa is a is a woman called uh, Elizabeth Clara. Uh, her contacts began in 1956, and um, and uh, basically mm, she she wrote she wrote a book about experiences called Beyond the Light Barrier. Uh, there's also quite a bit of information on her and her story on the Internet. So, you know, if anybody wants to go check up on this, there's a lot of information, uh, you know, that came from her. Um, a lot of very interesting scientific information as well. Mm-hmm. on uh, You know, as the title of her book uh, indicates, Beyond the Light Barrier. Um, you know, uh, when we do interviews as UFO researchers, and we always get this, you know, kind of a uh, left-brain, logical, scientific uh, question as do, you know, how do they travel faster than the speed of light, because otherwise it just would take so long. Yeah. And obviously that's just, a, you know, a very um, limited way of looking at traveling through space and time. As we know, we can actually bend space and time, so that's not really a relevant question. Um, but anyway, um, she also ended up working for the South African Air Force Intelligence uh, according to her own claims um, to assist with the identification of unidentified flying objects um, so I've not yet been able to independently corroborate this claim um, but hopefully with the use of uh, you see we've got something similar to uh, the Freedom of Information Act that you guys got there in America
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we've got the, the, the promotion of access to information act here in South Africa and I'm hoping to use that to establish uh, you know some of the details that she's claimed And uh, what I can add to this is that uh, a lot of information uh, was withheld uh, out of her first book. Um, She was told, basically, not to to talk about this. And uh, we're still waiting for this information to be released in a second book called The Gravity File. Um, And we don't understand why this information is not coming out. It's uh, it's quite a headache, actually. We want this information to come out because there's such a rarity of uh, published, uh, you know, books in, uh, in South Africa on South African events. Um, so, so we, as an organization, hopefully we can uh, assist in the process of actually getting that book published.
0: And when you said she was told to hold the information back, was she told by uh, the South African Air Force she worked for, or the, the beings, if you will?
1: The, no, the Department of Defense uh, of okay. South Africa. Yeah. yeah. Hmm, interesting. Um, as far as we can tell, uh, the gravity file talks about uh, you know how the anti-gravity kind of propulsion systems work. Um, huh. And it, it mentions dates and places and names of, you know, of people who don't want that kind of details revealed.
2: <laughs> yeah. we got to spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the Internet.
0: You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
2: Great heavens, mm. what kind of radio show is this?
1: And then uh, we've got a, um do you know of the term Sangoma? Mm, no. No. Okay, uh, do you know the term a witch doctor? Oh, yeah. Okay, now, there is a fundamental difference between the two, but uh, for our purposes, let's go with that. Uh, But I'm going to use the word Sangoma, and you can think of witch doctor, but, you know, it's not in a negative connotation whatsoever. Okay, yeah,
0: it's like a good witch doctor. Uh,
1: Absolutely. uh, Sangoma um, is is very much a spiritual healer, uh, a herbalist, and uh, also a keeper of the traditions, a historian as such. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a, a very high... Sangoma uh, called a Sanusi, which there are only two of in the Zulu nation in South Africa. His name is uh, Credo Mutwa,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, who's uh, talked about his personal experiences and uh, also uh, some of the knowledge that uh, he was given uh, as part of the initiations in a, a, as becoming a sangoma. And uh, he was he was quite he was ostracised by most of his own people because of you know speaking about things he said he, he wasn't allowed to speak. Um but him like a, a lot of other traditional leaders all around the world knows that the times have are changing and that you know, these the kind of situation where you pass on uh very deep um, information from one person to the next that time has basically passed and uh the information now needs to be spread on a wide basis to to everybody. Um he had an abduction experience himself, um, and during one of his initiations, part of it was also to eat, uh, part of the flesh of one of these grey beings, uh, which has a kind of a hallucinogenic effect, uh, as, as we understand it. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is very, very interesting. Kriya Mutwa is also, as a Sanusi, he trains other Sangomas he's trained more than more than 500 Sangomas himself oh, wow. and um and he's a very very special person um he's also the keeper of some very old traditional uh ornaments and also a breastplate uh indicating uh, the little gray beings and also uh, specifically you know a saucer shaped craft hanging off this uh, very heavy bronze uh breastplate uh, that he puts around his neck um, and these things are, you know, it's very, very clear. It's not, not ambiguous whatsoever. And this goes back in their history, uh, you know, since also they they are aware of, they know that there are different beings interacting with Earth. They know that there are uh, reptilian beings living inside the Earth. Um, and and uh, David Icke uh, especially came to South Africa to interview uh, Kredo Mutwa. And uh, they became, you know, very good friends. And um, Kredo Mutwa is from his traditional knowledge confirmed a lot of the research that David Icke has done, which is also very interesting. And then Credo Mutter is also one of our best sources of information on crop circles in South Africa, believe it or not. <laughs> and we do have those. <laughs> he says that um what what is very interesting um is that uh, these these formations do go back very far back in, in recorded history in, in their recorded history of the Zulu nation. And um, they they considered this as very sacred, and uh, they would erect stones around these circles, and they would never go into that area. And they they would know basically, you know, long after the corn has gone and you know other things have grown there, the stones are still standing. And this has been quite a, a source of a, of a mystery in Africa. And most possibly in other parts of the world as well, where we find stone circles, yeah. you know, just singular stones standing upright in a circular formation, and 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 it's been quite a mystery as to the purpose of what that could be, and and the way that Kredo Mutwa describes this, this this makes a very plausible explanation, and um, he knows of of such cases going back uh, at least until the 1800s. Um, but also, obviously, uh, long, long before that, he's seen crop circles himself and investigated them. Um, uh, and part of uh, part of his job is basically to also to investigate mysteries. And uh, he knows quite a lot of uh, the Illuminati conspiracy, you know, that mm-hmm. the secret world government and, and you know, new world order, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, he knows quite a lot about uh, individuals who has come to Africa to. Promote that kind of agenda, you know, through, through all the years. Uh, so the people such as Cecil John Rhodes and, and the likes. Um, he's he's uh, had a very tough life. He's uh, never been afraid really to speak his mind, and because of that, obviously, as you can imagine, you know, there's lots of people who, who they, they would they would literally stone him if they could. Um, oh, and wow. As far as we can tell, um, his son was actually murdered um, as well, because most probably because of you know some of these things that he's been revealing. Wow. He's more famous outside of this country than he is here. Yeah, I've heard
0: of him uh, through his work with David Icke, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: There's one more, at least one more, that I want to definitely mention. Um, There was also a book written about this uh, called The Twelve Planets Speak. Uh, This is a contact uh, that started in 1960 uh, in the town called Durban, uh, which is a coastal city in South Africa. And... um, We're gonna use uh, the the pseudonym for this contact because he's never wanted uh, any kind of attention, and his real name used. Okay, Uh, I've made contact with him myself. I know who he is, and um, he's still alive, and the contacts are still going on. But basically, what happened? (coughs) Excuse me. In 1960, he was working at a furniture uh, factory, and um, there was a, a A position uh, that was open up in 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 the factory, and uh, the guy who filled this position was uh, somebody new. Nobody knew where he came from. Nobody knew him at all, Um, and um, they became good friends as time went on. They went on, you know, early morning fishing trips together, and. And and they talked about all kinds of things, philosophy and whatever. But Edwin was a very simple guy. He didn't really care much about, you know, anything mysterious or whatever. Mm-hmm. He, he was just living his practical day-to-day life. And uh, during a couple of the early morning fishing uh, excursions, they would, you know, look up at the sky. And uh, at some point, you know, his friend would just bring up the, con- the, the topic that, you know, uh, you know, what does he think of life out there? And and Edwin would say, yeah, well, you know, it's a way too big. Yeah, you know, it's most probably life out there. And uh, then one morning, um, his friend said, well, look, what if I can prove it to you? And uh, so, you know, everyone was taking a little bit of back, and uh, his friend put, took out a, a radio unit out of his bag and just adjusted a little bit, and they actually heard voices uh, coming from this radio unit. And then he said, in about 10 minutes' time, look in that direction over the sea, and you'll see a light. And sure enough, ten minutes later, they saw, they saw light. This light came closer, came very close to them, and um, you know they could hear, they could communicate through the radio. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: there was nothing special about this radio. Uh, in fact, it was an Earth radio. It wasn't from anywhere else. Um, the only difference was that it didn't have any kind of a power source. You know, it wasn't hooked up to the electricity or anything like that. Yeah, it was receiving its power straight from the communication from this, uh, this craft. Uh, eventually, um, Edwin was asked, uh, to become the representative of this confederation of 12 planets. Um, they are very much human looking, very much similar to us, and, um, they claim to be coming from an anti-matter universe. So it's <laughs> kind of like, um, the polar opposite of where, you, you know, the kind of matter that we exist in. Yeah if that makes any kind of sense. Here. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but yeah. Now, there's a lot of information, technical information that they did make available. Um, they, they, you know, gave him information to make available to people that are interested. And, um, he, he was, he was given this radio unit, um, when his friend had to leave, which was after about two years of, of living here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, he was, regularly communicated with um, they've they've recorded audio tapes since that time uh, thousands of them uh, a lot of the tapes have disappeared um, and um, like I said the contacts are still ongoing and um, it's it's a very 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 credible and uh, interesting case wow um, I, I think there is also some information on this um, on the internet uh, if people want to to find some information on this, um, the, the, the original document was called a message from Koldas, which is the planet where Edwin's friend comes from, specifically in the Confederation of 12 Planets. How do you spell Koldas? K O L. Yep. D for donkey, A S for sugar. Nice, okay. Koldas.
0: Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, these are these are fascinating stories. I, I didn't even know anything about the contactee uh, history here in, in South Africa. Yes, yes. There's a
1: few more, uh, not not too many, but uh, yeah, there are there are a few. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, as we do our exposure uh, in the media, that that we there is an organisation such as SAFOR in South Africa. We're hoping that more people will come forward uh, with the you
0: know stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Now SAFOR is uh, sort of like the, the latest, I guess you could say, in, in the ufology history in South Africa. Talk a little bit about about that history of people studying the UFO phenomenon. You said that you had like a list of 10 groups there. Um, you know, you don't have to go through all that, but just just tell me sort of about the evolution of people having an interest in the UFO field in South Africa and, and you know, maybe compare and contrast it somewhat to what was going on in America, if you know about that kind of thing. You know, uh, what what, yeah. was, what was the situation like in South Africa? for people trying to get to the bottom of the UFO mystery uh, throughout the 1900s and and, and recently.
1: Yes, um, I would say about the time that um, NICAP uh, was infiltrated by the CIA, uh, you know, about that time was when Elizabeth Clara had her contact experiences and, um, and she was also basically given the task of trying to educate the public on the reality of extraterrestrials. Um, by the way, her... Uh, contacts came from uh, our closest star companion, uh, Alpha Centauri, um, you know, to our solar system. And um, apparently there is some interaction on a regular basis with with, uh, the people from that uh, planet called Meton. And uh, Elizabeth Clara then, uh, you know, did what she could and uh, she started, she joined or started a group called Contact International. Mm Uh, a lot of emphasis were put on more the metaphysical side uh, of, of these kinds of contacts and the philosophy, the spirituality, um, that kind of thing. And um, that has been, if I can maybe say, the flavor of uh, the kind of research that has, that has happened um, mostly up until, I would say, about
2: 1995
1: or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that Point on, uh, we had, um, uh, no, 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 I, I do apologize. There has been a group called EQ4, um, who has been operating since about 1985. And MUFON also had a chapter here, uh, who conducted scientific, uh, you know, UFO research. Yeah, And, uh, collect, uh, investigating cases and, and making sure that the media, um, you know, didn't, uh, distort the information. Um, and, and the the, the MuFront chapter that still exists in South Africa, they see their role mostly as a, as a media watchdog. Uh, they don't actually do interviews. <clears throat> uh, they they leave that part up to me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is uh, quite an interesting uh, relationship we've got going. Um, I've always uh, fostered um, the belief that uh, the different groups need to uh, re- do the research together and share the information um, because it's no use reinventing the wheel. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no ego involved here. It's, it's, we, we, we want to help the, the public to, to get access to information. And it's also not about, uh, telling people what to think or believe, but there, there are a lot of people who, who want to get their hands on the information. And how can you possibly form an uh, uh, informed opinion on something which you don't have access to the information? Yeah. Um, so that is our, our, our mission is to, to collect the information and distribute it. There has been a few other smaller groups, and um not much documentation unfortunately um so the the, the the most of the information I do have comes from people who's either been a member uh or if they've had some kind of a small uh, printed uh, newsletter, uh, then I would have some information on that uh, but that kind of research is still ongoing as to the actual history of UFO research in South Africa.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like it's it, it was sort of on the fringe a little bit in the sense that it, it, if you don't really know the history uh, that well, then it's not as uh, well-documented, I guess you could say, as the American it's history.
1: It's not, not well-documented at all. Um, I can mention a few yeah, you know, Elizabeth Clara uh, was a, a pioneer, and then Cynthia Hind uh, as well, uh, because Cynthia Hind uh, is, the, is the only person who's really, really published a lot of information. Um, we also did have a very small little book, Uh, called Let the People Know uh, who was written by a guy called Oliver Nags in 1963. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's very interesting. And um, in his little book he talks a lot about um, newspaper reports of the time, and him having a stack of these things, and just randomly picking from from his basket and then you know publishing it in his book yeah um so there's still a lot of research needs to be done uh, in in the newspaper archives um there's been a bit of a, a blockage uh, for me personally to be able to do that because uh, there's uh newspaper archives all over the country, and uh they they don 't have everything on a centralized computer system. Uh, database, and they say that if you want to come and do the research, you need to come here. <laughs> oh man! So, so it's, it's uh, and I'm hoping to, to still get some help uh, to to do all of that. But we, you know, our sightings database, uh, basically, we've got about 600 or so sightings uh, on the database already, and it's just the tip of the iceberg.
0: Sounds like it. It sounds like it. I guess to, to sort of move into some of the big picture elements that may be at play here in South African UFO scene, what's the role of the military like as far as uh, as far as the UFO phenomenon goes? Are they, you know, kind of along the lines of the US government in that they do the investigations and then you don't get any information back from them? But what but how extensive is the military involvement. Uh, you know, in, in the UFOs, as far as you can tell,
1: we've uh, we've had a, a bit of an interesting situation, and yes, t- t- I totally agree with you that the the uh, methods that are being used um, for dealing with situations as they are occurring, and also with leakages of information, that kind of thing, uh, are very similar in America, uh, in here, in South Africa. But there's been one major difference: any kind of um, <clears throat> Um, research that's uh, been wanting to be done, from the public and requests made for information, um, um, has basically just met on deaf ears. Yeah, uh, that's how they deal with it here in South Africa, and they just hope that it goes away, and then it, you know, eventually does. Um, they don't feel like they need to answer the questions,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I, I find that very arrogant. And and um, I will do what I can to to reverse the situation. Um, you know, we are paying the salaries of these guys, and they are our servants, not the other way around. Yeah. Um, well, that's the way it should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can give you an example. Um, we've got a very sensitive military installation here in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Simonstown earlier. It's uh, very close to Simonstown, uh, which is our naval headquarters, and uh, this base. This military base I'm referring to is called Silver Mine Military Base. Now, there's a lot of things going on there, um, which most of the people in public don't know about. Um, one of the departments that got there is called the Southern Air Command, and their uh, sole duty is to monitor all air traffic and to give permission, uh, you know, for overflights uh, in the Cape Town area. Uh, this is, this, like I mentioned earlier, this is one of our most sensitive military installations. Um, and what what is very bothersome to me is that um, the American embassy, a new American embassy was built a stone's throw away from this place, uh, even though a perfectly well-maintained embassy was in Cape Town itself. Um, now, why this would happen now in the last two years, I don't know. But according to my information, there are underground tunnels connecting this, these two facilities uh, through the mountains. And that, to me, is of grave concern. Um, you know, why would one of our m- most secret uh, national defense installations be, uh, on a constant basis, be connected to uh, the American embassy? Uh, it doesn't make any kind of sense to me.
0: Yeah. You said, like, they try to, they try to ignore it like it'll go away. That's kind of how the American deals with the UFO situation now, for the most mm-hmm. part. But does the military ever come out? uh with regards to UFOs and make any sort of statements or anything to even to downplay this like you said that thing about they said it was a military exercise and the light was bouncing off the clouds. Is that, that yeah, pretty much the extent of uh their, their role in, in dealing with the UFO phenomenon as far as the public is concerned?
1: No. Basically what they would do additional to that, uh, is that if you do request information they will send you they will send you information, things that have uh been been reported in newspapers, but things that are very you know they're, they're not it's not very credible information yeah um and then they, they will basically try to pacify you in that way, but they don't really feel like they need to officially say anything yeah um and uh, I also once went uh, together with another U- uh, veteran UFO researcher here in Cape Town. Her name is Pam Foxley. Uh, she was one of Cynthia Hines' um, investigators for, for many, many years. And uh, we together went to the Silver Mine Base, and uh, we, we requested information on, you know, what do they do there. And uh, they sent us away saying, no, you know, you can't come in here, but you can go and speak to a public relations officer at the Naval Base in simonstar and then, um, we had our second annual conference coming up as was in just before two thousand mm-hmm. and six and um so we wanted to find out from you know the national defence Force here in South Africa what the official policy was yeah or or indeed anything and uh so we went to this public relations officer and uh he, he was very kind and listened to our story and didn't laugh m- more than we thought he would <laughs> <laughs> and um but uh, he said, no, as far as he knows, there is no official policy on UFOs in South Africa. Uh, and then he offered to phone headquarters in Pretoria and just to confirm that, uh, which he did. And we listened in to the conversation, but obviously we only heard what he said. and We didn't hear what, what the other guy said on the other side. Yeah. Um, but he apparently spoke to a general... Uh, called Piet Retief, uh, which is quite funny for our people here in South Africa, because that is a major historical figure going back in the in the pol- politics of South Africa very very long back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, Um then basically the the first thing that General Piet Retief asked him was was well, well let me say it this way, Um you know the question was posed to General Piet Retief, you know what is the official policy, and without answering the question, he asked. The public relations officer. Are you a member of their group? So oh, I thought oh, that, your group. That, yes. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that that was quite revealing in itself. Yeah. Um. And then they had some kind of a long major conversation, which you know we only heard the one side of. And and we, we were called me and Pam Buxley by this uh, public uh, relations officer. We were called walk-ins, <laughs> which we had a, a quite a chuckle about us, you know, amongst ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that's some kind of a military term that they use, you know, for somebody out on the outside. Yeah. Um, and then eventually General Petratiff confirmed that no, there is no official policy on, on UFOs. And then I asked if I can get that in writing and I was refused. Huh. Um, so, you know, yeah. another thing that I tried to do to get some kind of official confirmation is I wrote, uh, I got the address to, to write to the president's office of South Africa. Um and apparently, you know, the track record of answering these letters are very good. Now, I wouldn't imagine that, you know, the President, President Tabumbeki w- would answer it himself. He can, obviously, he can't do all of it. But uh, his personal staff did. And I, you know, I received a, a letter in two weeks' time saying, thank you for your request. It's uh, being processed and it's been referred to the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism. <laughs> without any explanation. Now, to this day, I don't know what that reasoning is behind that referral, because I'm asking here for official documentation on current or past research on UFOs or whatever other term they would use. Mm -hmm. And um, now it's referred to the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism. And then sure enough, uh, another two weeks go by and I get a confirmation letter from the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism saying thank you for your letter. It's now been referred to the Director General's Office, Martinez von Svanskowlcraig. And uh that is where the trial ended. You know we made about uh fourteen follow up calls uh you know we have got the dates and the times of these things, and the numbers I dialed. I published it as well and um you know there was always just promises made that you know it has been dealt with, and you know haven't you received your letter yet and you know and we you know nothing has come from it. That's where the trial ended. It called cool the suck. Wow.
0: Mm. That is strange. So uh,
1: I'm hoping to use a similar method and maybe get to like a mass public mass action, just to get like thousands of people just to write the same letter to the same people. That, yeah. Like,
2: yeah. What's
0: going on? Hey, it's worth a shot. Uh, <laughs> um, now, what about the role of the media down there in South Africa? Now, I understand you guys have a pretty free, free-flowing media down there. It's not. It's not. It's, um, you know, it's a pretty. Oh, maybe I'm wrong, but. <laughs> Um,
1: yeah, no, no, it's it's a it's a whole range of situations. I mean, we've got our tabloids, you know, and we've got the daily press, and we've got our weekend press, and we've got the radio news and the television news. And um, but it is, uh, I, I saw a bit of statistics the other day on this, and and uh, you know, we are a little bit more free apparently than 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 you guys in America with uh, press. Um, but, uh, I can tell you from my personal experience um that when I started doing interviews um, I would always basically just get funny calls from people phoning in and asking questions. they would ask things like you know what did you drink you know what did you smoke or you know, yeah that kind of thing but that, that's to be expected well, and the other thing obviously is you know uh, you're a Satanist or you know it's evil, and you know you shouldn't talk about these things um and then I sort of eventually made peace with that and uh, realized that you know if I don't get calls like that then I'm, then I've got reason to worry <laughs> yeah but uh, but the media in general I've been very impressed with um in, they they they're very objective mostly. Um, like all media in the world, they don't always report accurately. They fill in the gaps with imagine, ma- imaginary details. Um, so, um, that has sort of, um, disparaged other UFO researchers in the past in South Africa to deal with the media whatsoever. Yeah. And, and this is where I most probably have got a bit of an upper hand in, in the eye of the public especially um, with doing the kind of research and people not really knowing about anybody else is that I've not been afraid to to do interviews mm-hmm. if people contact me I do the interviews I've been on television as well uh, four times now um, and, and the, the kind of feedback is very very positive um, I found that uh, I think this depends a lot on your own individual personality as well you know how much are you approaching this this subject with fear, with uh, skepticism, or with paranoia? Um, you know, the more paranoia you are, you know, um, how shall I say, exuding, the more you are attracting. Yeah. And um, I I don't focus on any negative aspects uh, whatsoever. I basically just want to to make information available so people can make up their own damn minds. Uh, And that's very positive. Just found that um, that the kind of responses in general, obviously there's been a few, uh, you know, different cases, but in general uh, the the media's interest has improved uh, tremendously. And it's very much open uh, reporting. Uh, One of the projects we're working on at the moment is to construct our own UFO monitoring stations. And uh, one of the biggest newspapers in South Africa um, is is, uh, covering it uh, quite openly.
0: Here in America, we kind of have what we call like the giggle, the giggle factor, which is sort of like just how when the media covers the UFO stories, um, it always, uh, you know, puts it at the end of the news broadcast and and sort of ties in like a little joke at the end. There's a major news story. On occasion, a UFO story will break into the mainstream news here in the U.S. and then, like I said, it'll be at the end of the pro at the end of the news, and they'll kind of like laugh about it. And and that'll sort of be it. Is the situation better in South Africa in that regard, or is, it, or is there still, is there still that sort of ridicule surrounding the subject, as far as the media goes?
1: It's it's actually a wide range. Uh, you know, we do get a little bit of of all all the situations, um, but mostly um, the reporters are quite independent and they do their own thing. They're not too limited in in having to toe the party line. Yeah. Um, but uh you know depending on the personality and most probably their editor mm-hmm. um you know if they want to do if they, if they want to put a, a kind of a a funny slant at the end then then yes that that does happen quite often.
0: And uh, sort of the last, I guess you could say, tenet of uh, big picture analysis here. What about the general public down there in South Africa? Uh, you kind of said that they're they're sort of rigid, I guess you could say, in their belief system as far as UFOs, pro con, or, or all, all all the range, I guess you could say. But but what would you say the attitude of the general public is in South Africa with regards to the UFO phenomena?
1: Um, I've I've been pleasantly surprised. Um, it, the the situation is mostly where uh, people just can't imagine that there isn't life out there in this amazingly vast universe and, you know, we are the only intelligent life. Um, Just most people would actually like to actually get their hands on something physical uh, as evidence Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, actually meet a being or something like that. Um, And I always sort of try and get people to think about it a little bit differently. I... I would use examples uh, of things that not everybody experiences themselves on a personal level, but everybody knows that it's possible. Um, you know, things like, I mean, this, might, this is a bit of a crude example, but I mean, you, you get the situation where people are, are raped, and, you know, not everybody uh, undergoes that experience, but we know that it happens. Mm-hmm. Um and the sim- similar kind of thing with you know with the uFOs and, and extraterrestrials Now most people are quite open to know that there are things that are happening every day that we just don't know anything about um The most common uh, kind of feedback that I get from the average guy on the street is that you know, why should I care yeah. um you know what difference does this make in my life um because a lot of the people are um survival based mentality where where is my next meal coming from you know um that kind of thing so you know i've also looked a bit at the psychology from abraham maslow where he's got that pyramid of uh, the hierarchy of human needs and if you sort of understand that at that pyramid you you see the bottom rung of the human need is the survival issues and if your mind is occupied on that constantly you don't have time to think about the things that go up the pyramid, which and that the, right at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization. And, uh, you know, if you can create a situation where people can spend a bit more time on, you know, who am I, where do I come from, how do I fit into the bigger picture, um, there, there are a lot, quite a few people in, in that situation, and, and it's very, very easy to talk to them about the subject. Uh, for them, it's very natural. But for the survival uh, based mentality, you know, they just. Why should I
0: care? That's yeah. the attitude. And then, just to sort of throw back to the media here. Here in the states, uh, here in the U.S., we have kind of like a paranormal boom going on as far as the Discovery Channel type shows and that sort of thing. Is there anything like that down there? Uh, you know, programs centered around the paranormal, or is it, or is it not breaking through yet there?
1: Um, we don't have a, as as an industry of um, creating our own. Programs mm-hmm. um besides soap operas <laughs> in south africa uh we are hoping that we can still um you know create more uh documentaries and in fact that's one of our projects as well is to actually create our own documentaries uh we want to do one on each major case um and also then obviously uh, international um news and and important information that that can help people to to make up their own uh, informed opinions. Um, but uh we've we've got uh lots of programmes and lots of interest in paranormal um series and and movies. Uh, you know, b- movies like Independence Day and, you know, Signs, Mel Gibson and mm-hmm. uh that kind of thing always are one of the best uh or they they always go on top of the best uh viewed or attended um movies that are shown and uh you know, the X Files was a very, very popular series here in South Africa. Um and then also now, you know, people are quite uh taken to uh people who have special abilities, um, like series like this year Heroes, I don't know if you know that. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh Forty four hundred, um, that kind of thing. And then also another series called Invasion uh we've been very very popular uh down here in South Africa
0: and uh just now we're jumping back into the general public sorry about sorry about jumping back and forth um what's what's the attitude uh for the general public and i guess for for you folks in the u f o community with regards to the American influence on UFO studies down there in South Africa, like you already told me about this Botswana thing with the crash and everything, and how the Americans ended up with the, the craft and two out of three of the bodies. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, in other parts of the world, there's sort of a, a tinge of, you know, distrust about the Americans with regards to UFOs. Seems like the U.S. has all the good stuff. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, maybe the ones who are kind of behind. Uh, any sort of cover up that may be worldwide, you know, maybe the uh, seems like they're at the at the crux of the whole issue. But, uh, mm-hmm. what's your perspective as a South African, uh, on that on that attitude? Is it is it something that, uh, the people down there feel and think, or is it something, you know, that that maybe we just think here in America that you guys resent us because of, uh, you know, the central nature of the UFO phenomenon here?
1: Um, yes, Tim, um, uh, In general, uh, it's a bit difficult to answer that. Um, You know, I can sort of give you a few of my own personal viewpoints. But in general, we don't really talk about any kind of American influence. Um, Like say, most of the people here are survival-based mentality, and they they basically just focus on what's happening today. Yeah. Um, They don't really care too much about what's happening in America, uh, besides if it's affecting maybe the oil price um, you know, things like that because that literally affects everything in the economy. Um but in the, in regarding the specifically the UFO issue, um no, we d- we don't see the Americans as uh, you know, controlling much uh, or, or being Ahead in any way, we we know that the controlling situation is an international thing, Mm -hmm. uh, because we do a lot of always when we're getting reports from America, we're also getting reports from other countries at the same time. Yeah. Um, So so that's that's a very interesting uh, way of looking at things.
0: So it's not sort of like the situation where you know you get a good UFO case and then you're like, well. You know, we you better look into it as fast as we can, because the Americans are going to come along and sweep this under the rug, kind of like what they did with Botswana or whatever. It's not that mm. no, sort of situation. We,
1: no, no, we've uh, like for instance the uh, the thing that happened at the Chicago airport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that spread on our internet news uh, websites very very fast, and uh, you know it was broadcast on CNN as well, if I remember correctly, and uh, you know a lot of people. Uh, you know, got their hands on that information, but it's, again, it's, uh, it's not a situation where, uh, the people actually care much. Um, you know, if something happens on their back door, then, <laughs> then that will sort of uh, get them to jump up and down. But, um, the general attitude is one of possibly more being entertained by the subject, uh, rather than wanting to actively get involved and, and dig in deeper. And um, there's quite a lot of individuals, maybe freelance journalists, who, who would be curious and, and would dig deeper, um, but they always find that, you know, they can get to a certain point and they're further than that. So uh, a lot of people lose um, uh, you know, courage uh, down the line very
0: quickly. And what about some of the other countries, now I know you focus on South Africa, so this is sort of a basic question, but uh, what about some of these other countries that, that are your neighboring nations, like Namibia, we talked about Botswana. Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Swaziland. Do these countries have uh, their own ufology communities and their own uh, ufology subcultures and that kind of thing, like America, like South Africa, like these other countries? Uh, are they are they players uh, as far as researching UFOs go to?
1: Um, no, not as far as I know. As far as I know, South Africa is the most active uh, on this continent uh, regarding the uh, actual research into UFOs and related issues. Um there has been uh certain individuals that has contacted me over the time uh over the last few years, um, but no uh centralized um research organisations whatsoever. Um I know the South West Africa, the Namibia uh situation is quite interesting, uh, especially for me personally, um, because there's a lot of um Nazi German influence. Uh, from during and after the Second World War,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so I don't know if that has any role to play with uh, things not really, uh, you know, coming out in the public um, where we are now. But um, there has been very interesting cases coming out from neighbouring countries, uh, especially such as Namibia and uh also Zimbabwe where Cynthia Hain did a lot of research. But um we find that um the reason why South Africa is more active in this regard is because our information flow is is uh, more accessible. Um the, the 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 rest of the countries in Africa uh, are are closer to more the third world situation um, rather than a developing country such as South Africa. Yeah. Um uh, where we've got a lot more electronic media Uh, computers and televisions in the houses
0: and things like that. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, some of these ancient astronaut theories uh, that have gone around for a while and and that sort of uh, suggest that the the original inhabitants of Earth came to you know from another, from outside Earth there are ETs or whatever and uh um, You know, they genetically engineered humans to mine gold. And I could have sworn uh, that a lot of this sort of originated in South Africa. I, do you know anything about that?
2: <laughs> yes,
0: yes. A, a local author called Michael Tellinger uh, actually wrote a book called
1: The Slave Species of God. Mm-hmm. Um, he himself grew up in uh, a gold mining community. Um, so his whole life, sort you know, was pivotal pivoting around this whole gold issue and the the obsession that people have with this mineral. Um, And uh, when he came upon Zechariah Sitchin's work, uh, you know, with the Sumerian clay tablets and the Anunnaki and, uh, you know, the slave species uh, actually created to work in the mines to find this uh, for the extraterrestrials, um, you know, things just started to make a lot more sense for him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he actually wrote this, uh, this whole book, uh, uh, on this subject. Um, it's, it's something that's very, very interesting, very plausible. Uh, I had a very interesting discussion last night as well with a few friends, and, you know, I asked the question, um, give me a good definition of what it means to be human. You know, I have, ne- I've yet to hear a good definition of what that means. Yeah. Now, why i say this is because i i do consider the possibility that our genetics do come from various sources and uh, depending on who you speak to that can be up to maybe more than 22 different genetic sources um and this would explain some of the uh ancient tribal knowledge such as the you know the uh, Dugon tribe in a country called Mali in Africa, where they, they've got detailed information about uh, Sirius and uh, its uh, white dwarf com- companion, which you can't see with telescopes. You know how, how does a tribal uh, group of people know about the details such as that? Um, and then obviously, you know, ancient Egypt, and the Aborigines in Australia, the Native Americans, North America, the, um, the Bushmen here in South Africa. Uh, very, very ancient peoples. Um, and as far as I can understand it, they, they know that they themselves do not come from this planet. Um, the Zulu nation here in South Africa, as well as I mentioned earlier with Kredo Mutwa, uh, apparently the name Zulu means from the sky.
2: Huh.
1: And uh, not many of the people now walking on the streets today, you know, more westernized, actually know that. Yeah. But the historians of their
0: own culture... And uh, no that in no uncertain terms. Interesting. And I opened up the, the interview here to uh some of the people who write for my website that they sent me uh only one person got back at me in time because uh, of time issues. But uh here's what she had a question for you and I'm gonna I'm gonna roll it out for you if you don't mind. Yes. Yeah. No, no problem, Okay, cool. Um and, and uh it's Rochelle Hawks. She writes uh the column Medusa's ladder every Friday at BenallofAmerica.com. And here's uh, her question. It's about racial issues within ufology and uh, the white majority of ufologists. I'm not sure if that's uh, in South Africa or I know that's the case here in America. So um, yeah. maybe that's part one, I guess. And uh, she says her theory has to do with the lack of recent tribal-type magic slash myths. Um, I'm not sure if she means America or South Africa there or not. I guess about the about the racial issues within ufology, if there are, uh, what the racial breakdown sort of is in uh, South Africa for U- UFO studies, and uh, how the politics of race and place may have influenced uh, your experience or your views, or you know your your way of doing research or anything like that. Mm.
1: Yes. Um, okay. So if I understand correctly, I'm just going to repeat. Um, the question is regarding uh, if there's been any influence in the, the way that UFO research uh, has been conducted in South Africa regarding uh, any racial issues. Yeah. Um, and I would uh, categorically say no, there's been no such um, interference whatsoever or such um, perspective colouring. Um, what I can say is that uh, currently looking at the people that I know about doing research um, it's mostly uh, also uh, white male um, but I do also know of uh, females as well um, and then I do have members um, you know who are not uh, white skin. I've got members of all different uh, kinds of cultures and uh, all, also cultural backgrounds uh, in my organization, but uh, they are not necessarily researchers. Um, I've got another Indian uh, of Indian background of the country India. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a researcher himself, um, and then and then I've also heard of another country in, in Africa. I think in Kenya. There's been a, a professor at the university, a black professor who who was a UFO researcher quite a many many, many years ago. Huh. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting interesting point that she brought up. Uh, mostly, it is a, a white male kind of um, attractive uh, force uh, to to become a UFO researcher, and why that would be uh, something I must most probably still look into. In the future,
0: yeah, yeah, it's a subject that's come up a couple times here on this show because uh, have, have you guys
1: uh, come to any kind of conclusions?
0: No, we're just kind of scratching the surface on it, and uh, th- that you first got to, I guess, uh, shine the light on the issue first, and, <laughs> and, and raise the issue, and then we'll figure out um, what the story is. But uh, it's, it's it's pretty interesting in, in that regard. Yeah. Um and uh, sort of like the last big picture thing to to, to to close the book I guess you could say on the UFO discussion what what are your big picture thoughts on UFOs what what do you think it's all about what does it mean what are they doing here based on all the stuff you've looked at of course you don't have a definitive answer nobody has a definitive answer but yes. you know what's your theory I guess you could say on 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 what we're experiencing here on earth looking up in the sky and seeing these things and, and down there in South Africa seeing them come down to the ground and land and crash and all kinds of other crazy stuff
1: yes um My personal perspective on the whole issue as to why this is happening uh what our part in this whole thing is um is based on uh the fact that we you can see from the research uh, that has been done internationally that uh there's literally no part in in our recorded history where these things have not been seen. They' have always been here um, so for all practical intents and purposes w- we are most probably part of them. Uh, It's not as if there's a difference. Uh, I would see us as part of a larger intergalactic community. Mm -hmm. It's maybe just a situation where we find that we are still uh, adolescents. We are still very young. And we are now maybe going through a process, a transformative process, to become more active members in a larger cosmic family. Um and I do feel that we have been guided at some points. We have been um interfered with from some people's perspectives. I choose not to look at it like that. But uh yes, I've, I've got a lot of hope and a lot of um positive uh feelings uh to, to what's gonna be happening in the future. And um I think uh also I want to add that these guys are not here to save us uh from anything as far as I understand the messages um we are responsible for our own um salvation, yeah, if you want to look at it from that point of view um and then once you know they are here to help us to help ourselves, and um they are not here to to do anything on our behalf um unless it is something major like a third world war, as far as I understand it, they do have the capability of neutralizing any kind of a nuclear weapon um, you know, even before it, you know, uh, leaves the ground. Mm-hmm. And they know where these things are stored and they know where these things are in satellites around the Earth and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't have any kind of uh, phobia about uh, a third world war breaking out. Um, I, I feel that this planet is a jewel uh, in the cosmos. It's, uh, it's got a, a lot of diversity of life forms. um and uh, ba- based on our own uh, civilization and all the variety of uh, things that that we that we exist with side by side uh, we are very interesting to their point of view uh, the way that we are doing things and uh, i would most probably look at earth as some kind of a, a experimental uh, planet um, because of all the different influences uh, nobody really knows uh, what's going to happen in the future? Yeah. Even though some of these guys, uh, you know, can travel through time and uh, can see what's going to happen in the future, the, most of the information um, that I find, find most credible, um, the guys say that look, you know, you when you when you make a choice that affects we, what's going to happen in the future, and we make choices every moment, and uh, the choices we choose to make is at, at the end of the day where we're going to be headed yeah um so I think it's at the end of the day more important for us to take personal responsibility and um, get this planet back to a level which is not as polluted as it is now, and we should actually help our children to become the best they can be as individuals rather than uh, brainwashed uh, you know sheep.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the hardest part. Now you say you're excited about the future. Do you think you're a young guy? You're 32. I'm I'm 29. Do you think uh, you and me, are going to see disclosure in our lifetime? Just Dis- um, UFO disclosure, of course, not uh something else. No. Yes,
1: yes, I understand. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a catch-22. I mentioned earlier that I think that the control groups, uh, who are keeping this inf- the lid on the information. Uh, or at least uh, the mostly uh, keeping a lid on the information because obviously they have left some information let some information come out uh, but I think that uh as the newer g- generations are taking the positions of these top uh, decision makers in these control groups uh it is possible that it will come out directly from them but um I think that it's most likely m- uh, going to happen more from a grassroots level. Uh, from people like you and me standing together and demanding that our leaders take responsibility and uh, reveal the information, uh, because at the end of the day, our very hard-earned tax monies are paying for their salaries and all this research to take place. Um, and we should see the benefits, especially uh, regarding technologies, Uh, Alternative technologies uh, to generate energy uh, that are non-pollutant, you know, the anti-gravity kind of propulsion systems, um, that kind of thing. And also um, uh, other technologies which which will help us to be more free as individuals instead of being dependent on systems. Yeah. such as the the banking systems and and all the problems we have with credit and 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 you know people not really knowing how to deal with with that kind of thing and and stop enslaving people's minds let people be free um I think that's my my final word
0: <laughs> there you go that's perfect um you already kind of talked about you get the documentary things you want to work on and stuff like that what's What's next for you guys at at Sofor? What's what's next for Christo Low and uh, and the South African UFO Resource?
1: Yes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're uh, basically in the process of registering as a non-profit organisation. Um, I've been has uh, been a, mostly a one-man show up until now and um so you know with the with the troops coming in hopefully uh, we can get a lot done in a very short space of time um we we going to be obviously doing uh, continuing with our annual conferences uh, which will be coming up in july again this year and um We will be building our own UFO monitoring stations, um, and that information will will help us a great deal in our research, and then obviously to identify hot spots where we can go out and and, uh, attempt to make contact with the guys that are here. And then also um, a major focus of what we're doing is public education. So um, I, myself, and a few other people will do uh, public uh, talks as often as we can and uh, continue with the media uh, interviews uh, just to to get the people on the street uh, to know more of the the important issues uh, surrounding the the UFO subject. Um, And then also, obviously, uh, the control, um, which most of us are experiencing but are unaware of
2: yeah um
1: so so I find that um you know through UFOs we have an avenue to to reach people who otherwise don't feel like they fit into any other kind of system or society or group um, which is very interesting um because we do get um, people from all kinds of uh, uh backgrounds and um you know most of them uh feel like they they can belong to a group such as yourself or because they re- they really don't fit in anywhere else yeah <laughs> yeah and and basically uh, what we can do is to, to by focusing on our own personal development as individuals uh, we can also in that way uh, uh, get people together uh, as a group to to assist the planet as a whole um, and then also help communities um, with basic skills development programs, and 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 get people out of this uh, survival mentality mode, so that they can focus more on on uh, self actualization issues.
0: Absolutely. How about a trip to America anytime soon for you, Christo? Oh, that will be fantastic. You
1: yeah, know, my um, res- my full time research has been totally unfunded, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm a major. A part of our non-profit organization will be to focus on funding for our different projects and then hopefully also to to obviously uh, get to America. Um, I do have a friend who, who visits the International UFO Congress in uh, Laughlin, mm-hmm. Nevada, yeah. every year, and uh, then she brings a lot of information back to us, um, so which is fantastic. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to uh, be in a position to possibly be a speaker at next year's uh, conference there.
0: Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Those are... Uh uh, there's an expression up here in America they need to get off the schneid and uh, and bring you bring you up here to America absolutely <laughs> that'll
1: be fantastic
0: well Christo I can't thank you enough for coming on the show uh, we've done two hours here and I feel like we've only scratched the surface and it's, it's amazing folks we've been saying it year in and year out on the show here ufology it's not an American phenomenon it's a worldwide phenomenon and you just listened to two hours worth of proof of that from Christo Lowe just a tremendous education for me I learned so much here and I'm really looking Forward to the feedback we're going to get from the BOA audio listeners when they hear this episode. I'm psyched to have had the chance to talk to you and have your first American interview be on an all of America audio. I feel great that we've established a beachhead here in South Africa for BOA. If you ever want to get in touch with me, if there's a breaking story in South Africa, definitely shoot me a line. We'll bring you right back on the program. Um, I have a feeling that this is going to be a back-and-forth communique for quite a while between the BOA crew and SAUFOR, and I'm looking forward to that. Of course, the website is SAUFOR.com, S-A-U-F-O-R.com. Christo, thank you so much again for coming on the show, and I look forward to uh, future adventures for us.
1: Uh, uh, thank you, Tim, as well. Uh, I think the work that you're doing is, is fantastic. and. Um, uh, I'm very glad to see that uh, us younger generation guys are, are also much more in the mood for working together than, than trying to shoot each other down and, and things like that, which some of the older guys have done. And I think that uh, co- collaborating our, our research efforts, uh, we will be able to, to get uh, to closer to the answers we are all searching for um, the, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. And uh, thank you very much to your listeners, and uh, we're looking very much forward to keeping in touch in the long term.
0: That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big thanks to Christo Lowe for coming on the show, giving us so much of his time and working around the time difference uh, schedule-wise to make the appearance here on BOA Audio. Of course, you can find out more information on Christo Lowe at his website, www.soufor.com, dot com. We're going to try and keep it short and sweet because we're already way up against the deadline here for when the show should be posted. So we're going to skip BOA teasers on some of the new stuff that's coming up. We're also going to skip the listener feedback. Those things will be back next week, I presume, hopefully, as long as my schedule uh, is a little more free. Instead, we'll just roll right into the thanks part of the show. Thanks, of course, to the fantastic BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks. Week in, week out, top-notch reading material, admin all of America We just posted a new piece from Rochelle talking about the Mormon-Bigfoot connection. In this past week's Gray Matters, Leslie talked about that prickly word, believe. What is believing in something? What is not believing in something? Is belief, knowing, all that great stuff. Very heady edition of Gray Matters this past week. Chiron talked about the rise of the machines, robots, and his latest fascination with them. And Regan Lee talked about the Stephenville... UFO sightings and the trickster element to the Stephenville UFO sightings. So four amazing columns posted at BOA this past week. Definitely want to check those out at the website. As we say, week in, week out here on the program, if you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story. The episode you just heard, my friends, two-hour call to South Africa, that costs a lot of money, trust me. How can you help us pay for a phone call like that? Simple. You make a donation via PayPal at BOA. Go to Banal of America. You'll see the PayPal button. Click that. It'll take you to the PayPal page. All donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and Banal of America up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to have a very neat edition of the show. Uh, My friend, Chris Balzano, actually lives pretty close to me. We're going from 8,000 miles away to a half-mile away. Chris Balzano will be coming to the program to talk about his recently released debut book, Darkwoods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in Freetown State Forest. We're going to be talking about the unique setting that is the Freetown State Forest, which Balzano says lies at the heart of the infamous Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts. We'll find out about the colonial origins of Freetown and some of the modern-day oddities outside of the normal esoteric genres that we talk about here on BOA Audio, that have been reported to emanate from the Freetown State Forest, including zombies, an amazing witch story, and the very strange Pukwudgie creatures, that are sort of like trolls, but have been around apparently in the area for many, many years. Very fascinating stuff with regards to the Puckwudgies. We're also going to take a little dive into true crime, as we talk about the cult activity that plagued the area in the late 1980s, what is this cult activity all about, and some of the infamous cases in the area from that time. It's definitely a fascinating interview that goes off the beaten path of our usual esoteric discussion here on the show to cover areas that are oftentimes marginalized by the bigger esoteric genres. That's next week on the show. Chris Balzano talking about Dark Woods, Cults, Crime, and the Paranormal in Freetown State Forest. And on that note, my friends, we're going to call it a week and try and wrap up the episode here and get it out to you in time. Thank you so much for your patience. I apologize for being so late coming at you this week. I'm hoping we can get back on track next week and have things rolling out on a fairly steady pace from here on out. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.